people today, I think it's pretty clear that being made right with God is a matter of keeping a certain set of rules. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, those rules would probably be the Ten Commandments. If you're familiar with the New Testament, the rule might be the golden rule. Basically, it's a list of do's and don'ts, things they should do, things they shouldn't do. Now, rules are not bad in and of themselves, right? I mean, rules actually can be a very helpful thing. Uh, you imagine what it would be like if, uh, how dangerous driving would be if nobody obeyed the rules, right? Um, imagine playing board games with your family on some Saturday night and nobody decided to go by the rules. Imagine playing sports on a weekend and nobody decided to play by the rules. Very soon, things would just be absolute chaos. So, rules can be a very helpful and important thing. And what's true of driving, what's true of board games and playing sports is also true of life. Rules can be very helpful to us. As a matter of fact, the most important rules in our lives are those rules that actually have a kind of a moral fabric weaved into them. So, for example, if you're driving on the 5 freeway and you zoom past the sign that says speed limit 65 miles an hour and you zip past at 80, there's a good chance you didn't even realize you broke that rule, and you probably don't feel too bad about it. Now, I know. I mean, this is Southern California. I'm just being honest, right? That's the way we tend to drive around here. But if you lie to your spouse, you lie to somebody in your family, you lie to one of your friends, you feel it when you break that rule, right? At least I hope you feel it when you break that particular rule keenly in your heart. The point I'm trying to get at is that not all rules are equal. There are many rules that just, they just govern the mundane affairs of life, and there are some rules that help us actually understand life itself. So, they're not all the same. There's a distinction there. But rules have limitations. Number one, you cannot write enough rules. There's not enough rules you could write to cover every single scenario that you might encounter in your life. So, you, you just can't write enough rules. So that's the problem if you live your life by rules. You just can't have enough of those. Number two, sometimes rules can eclipse the very thing that the rule was made up to kind of protect or to ensure. In other words, the rules become the thing rather than the thing that the rule was created to help. Does that make sense? And the last thing about rules is, and this one's pretty obvious, but it, we need to state it, is that everyone has them. We, we all have our kinds of rules, and we have our mundane rules, like what side of the tube of toothpaste you're supposed to squeeze to get the thing out, um, what, should the toilet paper go over or should it go under when you put it back. We have the mundane rules, and we have the really significant meaning of life kind of rules. And in a society like ours where the shared set of rules that bind us is falling apart or is no longer agreed upon, this becomes really challenging because we see these rules played out in every aspect of our lives. Those kinds of rules determine the way we vote, how you might use your money, even the kind of foods you might eat, the stores you shop at, the shoes you wear, or even the coffee you would drink. You remember 10 years ago, if, you were, if you're a coffee drinker, and if somebody asked you, is that, well, is that fair trade coffee? What that meant was, well, I gave the guy $2 and he gave me a medium black coffee. That's a fair trade, right? Now, it means all kinds of social, political, cultural ideology be packed in there, and it's just, just coffee, right? But this illustrates something really important about the nature of rules. Rules determine for us who's in and who's out. Rules act as a kind of boundary. 
Do you say the right things the way you're supposed to? Do you believe the right ideas? Do you shop at the right stores? Rules are boundaries. They help us define who's in, who's out. They also determine who are the good guys, and those usually the ones who obey your set of rules, and who are the bad guys, and those are the ones who typically don't obey your set of rules. We all have them. I have them. You have them. We all have these kinds of rules. Whether it's a PETA sticker on your car or a mega hat that you wear, whether you're a DC or Marvel kind of guy, PC or Mac, maybe you are an NRA or an ACLU, however you signal your virtue, however you stand on your soapbox, whatever cause you support or whatever movement you hashtag, you live in a world of rules that tells you who's in, who's out, what's wrong or what's right. That's just reality. So the question we have to ask as we come to Mark chapter 7 this morning is what kind of rules do you have to live by to know that you're okay with God? Right? What, what are those sets of do's and don'ts that you have in your head? Whether it's the Ten Commandments, the Golden Rule, whatever it might be, what are the rules that you live by that tell you God accepts me, I'm okay? And how do you know how frequently you have to keep them, or better yet, how many times can you break it before God no longer loves you? Now, in a room this size, I guarantee there's probably one or two people at least who don't believe in God, at least not that way. So that rule, they may not phrase it that way. So the question you have to ask is, what rules do you obey that tell you you are a good person? What rules do you have to obey that tell you you're, you're okay, you contribute to society, that you're a kind person, that you're the right kind of person? Friends, every one of us have these rules, and we apply them everywhere to everyone, and they tell us how to make sense of the world, who's in, who's out, what's wrong, what's right. And in our passage this morning, Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, we are seeing a very similar kind of thing taking place. For these ancient religious leaders that are called the Pharisees, the rules that mattered to them was about something that's very, very trivial to us. It was about ritual purity, uh, particularly the cleaning of hands, washing their hands. But their rules, even though very different from us, exerted the same kind of pressure. It determined who was in and who was out, who was right and who was wrong. But their rules suffered from the same kind of problem when they became the ultimate thing. They completely missed the point of why the rule was created in the first place. And so to understand these 23 verses this morning, we have to ask and answer three questions of the text. What was the problem? How did this happen? And what was the outcome? So what was the problem? How did this happen? And what was the outcome? We're gonna look at them one at a time. So number one, what was the problem? So let me give you just a little bit of background information for those of you who may not be part of our regular series on Mark here. As you know, Jesus' ministry is expanding and he's increasingly getting opposition from the rulers of the day. And it turns out that his disciples were not washing their hands before eating. Now I know in our culture we go, doesn't everybody wash their hands before you eat? Well, no, that just goes to show how much we're influenced by our culture. This was a pre-modern world. They didn't know anything about bacteria or germs. You just ate. That's what you did. You know, you just ate food. So for them, washing their hands was not a matter of hygiene and health at all. So if that's how you're reading this, they wouldn't have thought about germs and bacteria. For them, you just ate with your hands. For them, washing their hands was a matter of ritual purity about being clean before God. And so the disciples didn't do that. 
They're just the kind of guys that they're thankful in their hearts. They see food, they eat it. It's like me, whenever I'm gathered in a group, the person I want to pray for the meal is the one that loves God and is the most hungry because they will appreciate it and be quick about it and just get to the business at hand, right? But they had all these procedures and the disciples didn't do that. And so they were questioning the disciples and by doing that, implicating Jesus. How come your disciples don't follow the traditions of the elders? So that's a little bit of what was going on. Here's, here's the problem. It's actually pretty easy to figure out. Look in the text itself. Jesus says it three times what the problem is. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. Verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Verse 13, making void the word of God by your tradition. The problem is pretty clear. These leaders had abandoned the truth of God for their traditions and their customs, and sadly, they did not even know that they were guilty of doing so. They believed that their practice, if they, their practice of washing their hands, this ritual of purity, cleansing themselves physically of the dirt on their hands was also cleansing themselves of the filth of this world, and now somehow they were holy, clean, and acceptable before God. Now, I, I know, because I've been a Christian for many years, when we read the Bible, we have a tendency, what I call, to flatten the Bible. And so, so what we do, what I mean by that is, if you're a Christian and you're reading this passage, you might be tempted to, to think, uh, as you read that passage, oh yeah, those, those intellectual theological types are all under their theology. They, they're, just, they're just like this. They totally miss what God is about, Right? And if you're one of those theolog theological types and you read this passage, you, you think about, oh, yeah, those like charismatic Pentecostal types, they're so into their enthusiasm, they really don't understand who God is. And if you're a charismatic Pentecostal type, you read this passage and you think about, oh, yeah, all these those Anglican, Episcopalian, high church types, all into their liturgy, they totally miss who God is. And so we all kind of read this and, and think it applies to everyone else, but not ourselves, and we think it applies to them, and, and they miss out on God, but we get it. And if you're not a Christian and you read this, you might be thinking, yeah, see, these, these Christian religious types are so into their institutionalism that they don't understand what God is about. See, that's what I mean by we flatten the text, we make the Bible very one-dimensional, and the application to ourselves is paper thin, if it applies at all, because the way we read it smashes it down so there's only one application, and it usually applies to everyone else and not to ourselves, right? That's the way we tend to do that. Now, it is true that these religious leaders did misunderstand and miss the point of God's Word, but it's not because of their religiosity. It is because of the universal human tendency to be blind to our own cultural views, our personal beliefs, and our plausibility structures. Let me say that again. They missed God's Word not because of their religiosity but because of the tendency we all have to be blind to our own culture of way of understanding things, our own personal beliefs, and the structures that make things possible in our lives. In other words, it's really hard to see things differently when the entire vision of your culture or worldview is framing things in one particular way and will not let you see it otherwise. So this is something that we all struggle with. And here's the thing, the ironic thing about that is the more unaware you are about that influence upon you, 
the more susceptible you are to see things that way and the harder it is to see things differently. Does that make sense? The, the more you don't realize that my own personal beliefs, that my culture around me and, 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 and my society is framing the way I see things, and the less you realize that's what's going on, the more susceptible you are to be stuck in seeing things that way because you can't step out to get a different point of view. And that's what was happening on here. So these traditions, these rules had become so influential to these leaders, but yet they became so contrary to God that Jesus actually said, those very things that you hold on to, you've left God's commands. You've voided the command of God. You've actually rejected what God is trying to teach you. That's a big problem. So we need to next ask, well, then how does this happen? Because if this is a universal tendency, then we are very susceptible to the same thing that these religious leaders were as well. So how did it happen to them? And I think it happens in a way that really makes sense if you just stop and, and think about it. Number one, our traditions, our, our practices, our rules, whatever you want to call them, they actually do enrich our understanding of God's words. That's why they've become traditions that are so commonly held. That's why we accept them. They actually enrich our understanding of the Word of God. And just like these first century Jews, they're very practical kinds of things, and they're, they're easy to latch onto. And they, they make what can sometimes be so cerebral and out there something really practical that we can bring in here. And these religious leaders, man, they, they went to town with it. You're familiar with the Ten Commandments. So God gave these ten principles to live life, and they created these religious leaders 615 traditions based on those ten, right? So what they were trying to do was make what can sometimes be vague real concrete to make God's Word applicable to us. So we might do the same kind of thing, for example, to, to develop the, pre, the practice of prayer, we insist that we pray before each meal and give thanks, right? Uh, we, we might say things like, this is how we do it. You, before you eat a meal, you pray. That's what you do. And, and those practices make a principle of prayer practical in our lives, and that's why they become the way we do things. So not only do these enrich us by making our faith practical, these things can actually be protective as well. In other words, our traditions, our practices, they can actually safeguard us against temptations of the world or the, to uh, safeguard us against sinning against God. So we might have a practice like, you Christians do not see rated R movies, right? If you were from an older generation, that might have been the kind of thing. Uh, I, I know some older saints, and they used to have an expression, I don't hang out with girls, well, I don't chew and I don't hang out with girls who do. I don't know, you know, that, that kind of a thing. These, these weird things that were to safeguard them from perhaps compromising their faith. So Christians don't go see rated R movies, right? Christians do not drink alcohol ever. Christians never use foul languages, foul language. These traditions, these practices, they range from the little things like what movies we should see and how we should pray to the real significant things like you might find in the Catholic Church that the, the, the priesthood never marries because in part based on a bad interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. They're taking something that enriches their understanding of God's Word. It's practical. It's a protective measure. But then these things kind of morph and then it becomes a problem. The problem is the more helpful these things become, the more protective they are to us, 
they begin to take a sense of authority, almost a providential nature, and then it moves into step two. In traditions, enrich our understanding of God's Word, and then eventually, before you know it, traditions equal God's Word as well. So, for example, we're an evangelical church, so let me ask you this. Show me one verse that commands that we should pray before each meal. Show me a verse that says that you need to end every prayer with the phrase, in Jesus' name, and a verse that commands that we should never watch a movie over the rated R or drink alcohol. Now, notice right now, some of you are actually even getting nervous because I'm actually saying that. Why? Because I'm beginning to tamper with the protective and practical traditions of our evangelical culture, right? That's what's happening here. Now, my point simply is that traditions can sometimes morph from enriching our understanding to be equal with our understanding of God's Word and have an authority that only God's Word should have. Now, honestly, if I were to ask most of you, you could probably string together a couple of verses and to show how these are actual good applications of God's Word into our lives, but that is exactly my point. If you're not aware of the culture or worldview that you inhabit, your application is always going to be bound by that worldview, and you won't be able to see it any other way. And that's why it seems so self-evident that this is just the way you do it, because that's the worldview you see from, and it's shaped you. And the tradition that enriches God's Word soon becomes equal with God's Word. Something that's been practical and protective becomes providential, and then that leads to the last third step. It can begin to eclipse the Word of God itself that our practices actually eclipse what God's Word actually says. Because the traditions were so helpful and practical and they protected us, they took on an authority that they probably should not have had, and then next thing you know, it not just enriched the Word of God, it became equal with the Word of God, and now it actually eclipses God's Word. I think that's a pretty fair analysis of what happened to these Jewish leaders, and I think that's a pretty fair analysis of how things work in our own lives as well how we can easily forsake God's Word for our own traditions without even realizing or intending to leave the Word of God and replace it with something else. One classic example of Americana Christianity, you all have heard it, well, God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, don't you love that wonderfully unique American mixture of rugged individualism with a capitalist work ethic? Yes, and that's the way God thinks. And it sounds right to us because in our society we value what? Autonomy and an economy. And so that makes perfect sense to the most people in our culture when in fact of the matter it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's why God helps them. The point is, this is how these kinds of traditions grow up and become enshrined in the way we see the Word of God. Finally, we know what the problem is. We kind of see how that happened. The question we have to ask, the last question we have to look at is, well, what was the outcome? What was the outcome? What was the impact of replacing God's Word for their traditions? And it's the same thing as true for us as it was true for them. Notice it's pretty comprehensive. It impacted their worship of God, the way we tr- they treated others, and the practice of their own faith. 
So notice with me in verse 6. Notice verse 6 in Mark chapter 7. And Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. The first outcome is that this is basically false worship. It's a sham worship of God. And and Jesus, quoting Isaiah, nails it on the head. He says, here's why, because you're more concerned about the commandments of men rather than God Himself. You're not focused on God's commands, but on your doctrines that you created from His commands. And so, the first outcome of replacing God's Word with our traditions is our worship becomes a sham. Isaiah said, it's vain. God says, it's in vain do they worship me. The second outcome affects the way we treat other people as Jesus was talking about in verses 10 through 12 about these kind of nuances of what prevents people from caring for their aging parents. Now, Jesus has in mind the fifth commandment from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 10. It was an accepted practice in that culture, like some today, that children took care of their aging parents, took care of their physical and material needs as they got older. That's just what they did. However, in their culture, they had a practice of something called korban, which was uh, much abused. Korban just comes from the Hebrew meaning an offering to God, a gift to God. And, and when, you, when you designated something as korban, it was then set aside for the uses of God and God alone. And, and it, it was taken away from ordinary use. So if you had some property, for example, and you designated this as korban, it was set aside from every other kind of normal use for the purposes of God, that you, but you could use it in other ways you wanted. So for a modern illustration would be, uh, in our culture, you can will to a charity or a school or some organization, property or finances. Now that property and finances was yours until the moment of your death, and then it went to those whom you willed it to. In a similar way, if you said, I'm designated this korban, it's, it's set aside for God and God alone after I die, but yet I still retain usage of it. It just can't be used for everyday regular purposes like taking care of my family, for example. And because of a technicality, the religious leaders allowed for that. In other words, they allowed for a little nuance of the law to violate the entire spirit of the law. And Jesus says, this this is just horrible. This is vile social hypocrisy. And, And it clearly benefited the religious leaders of that day because they would gain this property or these finances, yet the mothers and fathers of these men would no longer be cared for, and they allowed for that in the name of religious offerings. And notice in verse 13, Jesus says, and you do many things like this. This is just one example of how you take a technical aspect of the law and you completely kill the spirit of the law entirely. And then finally, this elevating of human traditions over God's Word resulted in a rigid, rule-keeping kind of way of going through life. By the way, that initiated this whole debate. Like, look at verses 2 through 5. The whole issue was the Pharisees were upset at Jesus because their their disciples, His disciples, were not holding to the traditions of the Jews. By the way, you need to know this. Nowhere in the Old Testament is it prescribed that the Jews had to wash their hands before eating. That only applied to the priests who were serving before the temple of God. The regular rank-and-file Jew did not have to do that. 
But they thought, hey, if this is good for the priests, why not we make this good for everybody so everybody has to wash their hands? And Jesus says, look, when you elevate your traditions above God's Word, what happens is you become a rigid rule keeper, and we see the Pharisees are a perfect example. The Pharisees didn't care. For those of you who've been in this study, you know what kind of people were Jesus' disciples? They were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. They were just the the rank and file. They were not qualified to be religious leaders. They didn't have the qualifications. They were unfit. They were uncouth. They weren't from the right social caste. And yet these men, they were speaking of God's saving acts. They were exercising works of righteousness to help other people. They were being compassionate. They were doing what the law was intended to do. But the Pharisees saw none of that. They only zeroed in on the minutia that they were not following and made that the big deal. And so when we replace God's Word with our traditions, it's a sham religion. Ends up being hypocritical to the way we treat one another. And Jesus says, You become this rigid rule keeper, and they completely misplaced it all. And this always happens whenever we replace the Word of God with our traditions. We fail to grasp what really matters, and what really matters, friends, is a changed heart. Notice this is exactly what Jesus zeroed in on. Look at verse 20 in the passage. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evils come from within, and it is they that defile a person. Friends, if Jesus is correct, and all this evil is within the human heart, then whatever you're trusting in to justify yourself, whether it's before God or your own conscience, You have to deal with the heart, not just your behavior. In fact, as a matter of fact, friends, in fact, having a law without a heart transformed and regenerated by the Spirit of God is even more dangerous because of the twisted natures of our hearts. We will do like these religious people did and twist the Word of God to fit our own perspective, our own cultural belief, our own frame of reference, and make that the law of God. And that's exactly what they did. And this was what's created and is created then and now, what we would just simply call man-made religions. You see, the traditions of the elders were about being made right with God, but their traditions had inadvertently put away, had rejected, had voided the Word of God itself. And because of this, they completely misunderstood how to relate with God entirely. They believed it came to be about performing certain rituals, observing certain practices, and temple attendance on various holy days, and they misunderstood that that's nothing of what God wants. Jesus quoted Isaiah 29. This was a problem 700 years prior to Jesus. It's a problem 700 years after. It will always be a problem because it's a problem of the human heart that we think God can be satisfied by external realities and performances. And we misunderstand that it's always, always been about the heart, not about obeying rules. Jesus' comments in 20 to 23 blow that theory up. Guys, we cannot be made right with God simply by external behavior modification because the problem is not on the outside. The problem is the human heart. 
Jesus said it's from inside our hearts that all these things come out of. Friends, it's not the external actions. It's not how much you give on a Sunday morning or how frequently you attend or that you attend at all. Because those external actions are always driven by an internal drive, a motivation, a want, a desire that comes from your heart. So as we conclude, we have to ask then, then what can change the human heart? What can wash it clean? Now, some believe this isn't possible. Some believe that's just not possible. So the strategy then is to simply redefine what was pure and impure, whether that's culturally or personally. Whatever at one time was impure, you just normalize it, make it normal, acceptable human behavior. You rebrand it, so to speak, and the problem's solved. You just redefine what is impure and say it's now pure. We don't have a problem anymore. But for others people who think there's just no way that the heart can ever change, so the real problem has to be something else. Maybe it's a lack of education. Maybe it's traumatic life events in our past. Maybe it's our biology that's run amok. So, So what people really need is the right information. They need to deal with their past or they need the right medication. Now, friends, let's be clear. The Bible's very clear that there are things we don't know that we should know. And the Bible makes it clear that what's happened in our lives seriously does impact us. The Bible makes it clear there's a relationship from our physical selves and our spiritual selves. But from Jesus' own words, the real problem is much deeper and more powerful than information, experience, or chemistry. It's the human heart. It is the human heart. And the question is, what can wash, what can change the human heart? If you've been in our study of Mark, you know what it is. It is the gospel. Jesus himself. The heart has always been Jesus' consistent focus. That has always been the focus of his ministry because this is the one thing that if that one thing changes for you, it changes everything for you, even if nothing will change. But if the heart will change, everything can change. But on an Easter Sunday, it's, it's easy. It's expected to say these kinds of things, that the human heart can change, can be washed clean because of the gospel. But if we think that is easy, we are wide off the mark. Friends, for the human heart to change, the Son of God has to die. For the human heart to be washed, perfect blood has to be spilled. It requires that heaven open up and send down its most cherished citizen, Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate Easter for. It's wonderful to have the the wonderful music and the great flowers and all these things. But friends, every Sunday is Easter Sunday because every Sunday it is a reminder that this was the price that was paid so that we could be changed, so that we could be people that would want to gather, sit under the authority of God's Word and say, wash me, Lord, change me. That's what I need. I want to close with an old hymn, an old hymn that makes moderns like us kind of cringe, but the words could not be more truer or precious to anybody who wants to be cleaned and changed. The hymn called, There is a Fountain, the words go like this, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. 
Ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lispering, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing, thy power, thy power to save. Friends, Easter Sunday, every Sunday is a reminder that it's not about keeping the rules, but about having your wash, your heart washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ shed so long ago that we recognize and remember this weekend. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you for this, uh, this gospel of Mark that we've been studying together as a church. Father, we thank you being reminded this morning it is appropriate that, Lord, what you want from us is not performance, is not ritual, is not observance, is not attendance, but you want our hearts so that they can be washed clean. From within our hearts flow all these things that are wrong, and we know that because you can change our hearts, it's from within our hearts all these things that are right can come as well. Father, would you change our hearts? We often pray that you would change our situation, but Lord, pray that you would change our hearts. Father, you may not change anything around us, but if you change our hearts, you change everything in us. Lord, we pray that that would be our reality, and we thank you that Easter Sunday reminds us that that reality historically has been made real in the cross of your Son. And it's His name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.